hear the word preached as we as we examine your gospel, as we examine your your message for us today. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would help me to uh, be faithful, help me to share the gospel, help me to uh, speak the truth in love. Um, and I pray that you'd be with the folks who are here today, that, that they would hear from you, that they'd know you more, uh, that they'd be in your presence, uh, that your spirit would fill them and, and tear down strongholds and any kind of anything that stands in the way here in, here in the gospel preached. Um, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, this is uh, going to be a bit of an unusual sermon. I, am, uh, I had actually started out with a longer text. I cut it down uh, because I wanted to uh, highlight two ideas, and there was no way to do both of them well. So uh, we're going to do two separate uh, trips to Mark 2 this week. Uh, the other thing that makes this unusual is that it is the rare occasion that I am taking uh, somebody else's uh, not full outline, but but concept slash sermon, and I am uh, like I reworked it and I I worked through it thoroughly, and I'm I'm essentially preaching somebody else's sermon. Uh, this is a friend of mine named Vince Turner. Um, I saw him preach this message. Uh, I want to say like 18 years ago. Uh, I don't remember the exact date. Uh, it is a rare occasion of a sermon like that I absolutely can point to and say that changed my life. Uh, and, and it was, Vince was the outreach, uh, guy for, uh, Basher Children's Home. Uh, I heard him preach a sermon and all I wanted to do was go work there. And I took it on as a second job while I was a youth pastor and, and it inspired me. It, it drove me. And I now doing this, I am painfully aware that I will not match his ability as a preacher. Uh, he was the voice of, uh, like Indiana, some Indiana University basketball and did radio and spoke all the time. It was just magic. You ever know somebody like that? Um, but what he talked about um, is a truth, and I think the truth in his message is what I want to share with you today. We're going to be looking at Mark 2, and, and we're going to look at just the first little bit of this. Um, in this account, we see four men who carry their paralyzed friend to see Jesus. Like, they, they carried this man to Christ, and um, the four of them, like, this guy was helpless to take care of himself. He was helpless to do anything on his own behalf. He couldn't go on his own. He couldn't this. He couldn't that. Like, and these four men loved this guy so much, they carried him to Jesus. And they had faith that Jesus would heal him. And they had so much faith, they were willing to go to any length to carry him. And, and when Vince talked about this, he talked about the idea of being the guy who's willing to hold the rope for your friend. Like, you're... Your friend can't carry himself, you know, and so you, you pick him up, you know, his mat, and then you, these guys, like, y'all know the story, right? They, they take him up on the roof, and they cut a hole and lower him in, and, uh, you know, and, and, and Jesus heals him. Um, but, like, these are guys who are willing to go through anything. And we're going to dive into this. I'm not going to do it as well, but I'm going to do my best, okay? Uh, he might watch this later, so I need you guys to laugh uproariously for me. <laughs> and occasionally amen or applaud, I'm just saying. Uh, <laughs> I hope he watches it just so I can include that joke. Um, and again, we're going to be in the book of Mark. Um, this is a bit of a follow-up to Ecclesiastes. Last week we talked about this idea. We were finishing up that series. We are talking about the court of three strands, right? 
And we talked about the idea that this is like the three elements of, of relationship that believers should have and how Christ demonstrates that we're to love each other. And, and we sort of dug into this idea that we are supposed to be connected to each other in such a way that we're concerned about each other's uh, accountability and spiritual life. And uh, we're supposed to be concerned about each other's comfort and like like personal needs. And we're supposed to be concerned about protecting each other. And these elements are, are central to what we're supposed to be as believers. And we're going to work that in here. We're going to try to weave this idea of the cord of three strands into the sermon. I need a sign, like an applause sign. Like I, I, <laughs> um, and so we're going we're gonna to work on that. So like keep that in the back of your head. We're going to come to it. Um, before we dive in too deep, we're going to talk about Mark real quick. The Gospel of Mark is the shortest of the Gospels. Um, it was probably written by Mark, thus the name, but um, it's actually Peter's account because Mark was uh, Mark traveled with Peter for a while, and so a lot of people refer to the Book of Mark as Peter's preaching notes. Uh, and so, like like Mark was a student of Peter, and he wrote all this stuff down. And so, um, as a gospel, it is Peter's gospel, uh, and so like that is where this book came from, but. Like, uh, there are a couple of huge themes that we see, and we're going to talk about this. He talks a lot about insiders and outsiders and crowds. Um, a lot of this is, like, he really emphasizes, and it's because it's Peter, I think, Jesus' tendency to teach through, like, event or through the moment. And it's really cool. We're going to do a few Mark sermons, I think, in the next few weeks, uh, at least this week and next week. Um, and then finally, before we go any further, this guy, this disabled guy, in the ancient world, number one, medicine was awful. Everybody got it? Like, medicine was really not effective. You did not cure guys with, uh, who were per- paralyzed. It just didn't happen. And these guys, their, their, their end in life was to be beggars or to be taken care of by family or to be, you know, whatever. They were not going out and getting a job. They were not doing academic work. They were not like anything. This was an awful way to live. And it was assumed by many people in the first century that folks who were disabled were that way because of sin. Either they sinned or their parents sinned. Got it? Um, that takes place, uh, we see that with the blind man that Jesus healed, where the apostles or the disciples walk up to the guy and stand next to him and in front of him as though he's not, like as though he's deaf, not blind, they say, hey, is this guy blind because his parents sinned or because he sinned? Because everybody looked at disabled people, people who were like, like they assumed sin caused their problem, and they kind of had a lot of disdain for them. These were the low people in the community. Everybody with me? And that's fundamental to understanding this text as we go forward. So, uh, we're going to dive in here. Uh, this is Mark 2, 1 to 2. We're just going to do the 12 verses, uh, and part of it we're only going to skim over. Uh, a few days later... When Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Now, there are a bunch of things going on here. Uh, I have had read this a million times before I first caught the phrase, he had come home. Uh, I'm going to tell you it does not matter. This is not a rabbit trail, but I do want to address it. He is probably at Peter's house, though he may have owned a home. If he did, it was not a mansion, no matter what Benny Hinn says or any of those other, like, TV, give me money hucksters. Like, like I've been to Capernaum. There is nothing there now. And, like, when it was there, it was tiny. There was nothing there. So 
he comes to Capernaum, where Peter is from. A lot of his ministry takes place around there. I have real quick, I'll show you a map. Uh, it's up there at the top. Not going to go into this in depth. That'll be deep dive stuff. Sorry. Uh, I got to cut it because there's just no time. Um, but the house would have been something like this. And I, I wanted to include it in illustration so you could see it. The way they, these things were, they were walls with beams, right? And then smaller sticks and then slats, and then they would cover all of that with stones and then plaster it, right? It, it, like, it is a very simple house. A lot of times they would be four rooms. Uh, there would be an, a courtyard where you might keep animals. Uh, actually, Peter's house has been excavated, or what we're pretty sure is Peter's house, and there's an image of it, and most of it is courtyards, Right. There's all kinds of open space around, but there is a like there would have been a flat roof. They all had flat roofs because you would go up there during the day when it was hot. Right. Like when it was hot in the house in the evening and the the uh, cool of the evening was setting in, you would go on the roof to be comfortable or you'd pray or you'd cook up there or you would whatever. Right. Um, it was an access point. Some people apparently took baths on these houses, though it's not recommended. It turns out badly. Um, so. This is what this house would have looked like. There would have been a stairwell or a ladder. But to understand, like, if there are so many people there, there's nowhere for anyone to stand, right? Like, except for outside to listen. Um, imagine this. The crowd is pressing in. Everybody wants to hear Jesus speak. Everybody wants to be near him. It is standing room only. And you show up carrying your friend who is just not going to be walking in on his own. You can't fold him. You can't anything. He is not getting in there, right? Like, because carrying a guy is hard. Isn't it true? Like, especially somebody who's dead weight. And that's what he would have been if he was paralyzed. He's dead weight. Um, So here's some big ideas. I really want to kind of stay on track here so I'm not going too long with this. But Mark, or Peter, often describes a ministry of Jesus in terms of these insiders and outsiders. Crowds versus individuals. Everybody with me? And so, like, one of the things you'll see, and actually we talked about this in Bible study a few weeks ago at length, is that Jesus would tell parables to crowds. And then with individuals, he'd explain them. Right? Um, You would have the insiders and you would have the outsiders. You have the crowd and then you have the really outsiders, like in this instance. So the crowds are always depicted as pressing in and surrounding. They always listened, but they never engage meaningfully. Mark never depicts the crowds as responding in faith. He never depicts the crowd as doing anything other than grumbling or like being amazed. And that's it. And like a lot of times, really, the crowd ends up being a hindrance more than anything else. Isn't that crazy? Like, because we like crowds, man. Like, especially in modern America, we want a lot of people to show up, right? Um, But the way Mark depicts it is, these are people who are standing in a mass and not responding. And that's easy to do. I remember once when I was a kid, it's a story or a memory I remember years and years later. uh, And I'll think about it, you know, every couple weeks, it'll kind of pop up in my head um, of this. I was in a crowd of people and we were watching these two guys fight when I was in high school. And one of them was huge and the other one wasn't. And it was super lopsided. And I remember watching and thinking, this is wrong. And what did I do? I watched. One guy stepped forward and half-heartedly said, hey, leave him alone. And when nobody responded, 
he melted back into the crowd because it is incredibly difficult to do anything when you're standing in a crowd. It is so much safer and easier to stand quiet, isn't it? It just is. Um, So the crowd is always there. They never respond. They never engage. The outsiders, ironically named in this instance, like always have to act creatively to approach Jesus. We see that in this story. We see it in the story of the woman who was uh, had the bleeding. Right. She had to mix into the crowd and work her way to Jesus and touch him to be healed. She couldn't approach him in any other setting or Zacchaeus. Right. Who was a Jeremy? Oh, didn't even say it. Uh, He was a wee little man. So he climbed a tree. Right. And uh, then we all name our kid or Jeremy named his kid after him. Uh, But um, these are outsiders who had to do crazy things to see or engage with Jesus because the crowd got in the way. Um, That's important. And it's important to this. Finally, when like Jesus would often deal with these people specifically or the disciples specifically, or he would use these instances as teaching opportunities. And these are that's kind of an important idea, like like not as much today, but like next week it will be. Uh, So moving right along. Some men bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Some men came, bringing with them a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. I always read this as just the most absurd story ever. Like, it is just weird, isn't it? And, like, so I would read it, and, like, there's just not a lot there. Like, it's just a weird thing they did. But it's easy to miss the awesomeness of what's going on here. First off, this is a man because of the cultural understanding that everybody would have looked at and said, he is a sinner. That's why he can't walk. By the way, that is a horrible idea. There is some theological backing for the idea that sometimes people experience physical illness or difficulty because of sin, but it is not the primary teaching of Scripture by any stretch. Got it? I mean, now I cannot emphasize that enough. We'll talk about it more next week. But, like, we do see this. Again, blind man, you know, who sinned, him or, him or his parents? And Jesus responds, like, neither? Like, he's blind so that I can heal him to demonstrate God's glory. So back up, guys. And he heals him. Uh, or, and then the same guy goes to the temple. Having been healed, he can see. Everybody knows he was blind from birth. Even the Pharisees, and their response to him was, get out of here. We don't believe you about Jesus. You're a sinner because you were blind from birth. And they ignore the fact that he was healed in favor of, you're wicked. And so these guys are carrying a person that everybody in town would have known. It's not a big town. And everybody would have looked at and said, that man is garbage. That is a man you don't go too near because he is wicked. That is a sinner. We don't talk to guys like that. Right? And, of course, we don't have people like that in our communities. We don't know anybody like that that we avoid because they're bad. Right? We, we all, we all, this is not a problem in the modern world. Uh, but, but this man, they're carrying him, and everybody would have looked at him kind of side-eyed, right? And they're carrying him. He's dead weight. This would have been a whole difficult process to carry him down the narrow streets. And I'll show you in the deep dive, the, this town, the streets are narrow. There is nothing there. And, like, like, this would have been a real process for him. And probably because he was dead weight, he was probably extra heavy. Have you ever tried to carry someone who's dead weight? They weigh, like, ten times more than they should. Um, and then probably was worried that they might drop him, especially carrying him up on the roof via ladder. I, I, was, I did a funeral yesterday 
uh, a, a graveside service uh, yesterday, and I went early to spend some time praying and reading and reflecting. And every time I go to a cemetery, I think about like the four times in my life I've had to be a pallbearer. And I hate, hate, hate pallbearing because coffins weigh a thousand pounds. And like, I'm always terrified I'm going to drop them. Like, I I am terrified I'm going to drop them. And I can imagine these guys carrying this dead weight guy and like thinking, all right, don't drop him. He's heavy. Don't drop him. And sometimes it is that way when we encounter people who are broken fundamentally. And God calls us to grab a hold of the rope and carry them for a period in our lives or on our hearts. And they are dead weight. And there's a part of you that just wants to let go because it's so much work. But then there's another part of you that's like, this is my job. This is what Jesus told me to do. I need to love them. I've got my three strands. I got my cord. It won't break. I won't either. Right? I'm foreshadowing. So they dig a hole in the roof. Um, These roofs were designed to be dug through. Isn't that weird? I read that because the doorways were so narrow, they would often poke holes in the roof to put things inside. And so this is not that unusual. It is awful. I did read a scholar who was present for the digging through of a roof, and he said that it is a big mess with lots of dust and dirt everywhere, and it was a really unpleasant experience, but it was really easy to do. And so they're in the middle of a huge crowd of people. It's probably hot and smells bad because deodorant wasn't invented for like 2,000 years. Um, and, and like bathing, I guess, wasn't either. And so they're all there, and it was probably uncomfortable, and all of a sudden the place is full of dust. And like they do this thing that would have been considered kind of offensive. Um, and I'll get to that a little more later. Uh, before I dive into that, we'll get on to our next thing. Um, so these guys who are carrying this fella are not the crowd. They're actually the outsiders. The crowd is making it impossible for the outsiders to get to Jesus. Um, The paralytic would have been just the consummate outsider, right? Everybody knew he was a sinner, and in his condition, he couldn't really do anything for himself. He couldn't, like, provide for anyone. He couldn't anything. He couldn't bring himself to Jesus. And by the way, the lost live in that world. If you, like, they can't bring themselves to Christ. It is our job It is our job to bring Christ to them, right? It is our job to share the word. It is our job to preach the gospel. It is our job to love and to break down walls and to melt hearts and to do all of that other stuff, like through the power of Christ in us and the Holy Spirit. It is our job. And sometimes the church just, not the church, sometimes the crowds stand in the way. Sometimes it is the case that those who need them most just can't get to them because the church is talking so loud about everything else or looking at them side-eyes and gossiping or whatever that it makes what we have not worth having. Um, There's a great story in uh, Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace, about a um, where Yancey talks to a prostitute who uh, was a drug addict and she'd been exchanging her daughter's time for money And he asked her, why didn't you ever go to a church for help? And the woman looked at him and said, I hate myself already. I don't need them to tell me how bad I am. And sometimes the church carries that reputation, right? Sometimes we don't look like Jesus. Sometimes we don't love people who are rotten. Sometimes we forget that we're rotten and that Christ died for us. It's easy to forget, isn't it? And so the crowds are in the way. 
The outsiders have to go through a great deal to reach him. The friends who brought this guy to Jesus, they display faith that is outstanding, that is enormous, that is, that is crazy even. They were willing to overcome any obstacle to bring their friend to Christ, to bring this broken man to Jesus. And so by lowering him through the roof, they demonstrated that they trusted Jesus. They demonstrated also that they loved their friend. Because they did something ridiculous and something deeply offensive. By the way, I read this. I read a story. Um, there are other instances of roof lowerings in the ancient literature. Crazy. The most notable one I came across was a group of disciples who were trying to bring their rabbi, in, like their passed away rabbi, into a house to be displayed. I don't know. I don't understand the context. I just kind of. But they were trying to bring him in, and the door was too narrow. Coffin too big, too fat, who knows, right? There weren't coffins then, so he's probably just a big guy. And somebody said, well, let's dig a hole in the roof. And they said that would be dishonorable and offensive for our master. And they cut the door wider. And so, like, from that, some scholars argue that lowering a person through the roof like that is kind of embarrassing and kind of humiliating and really low. But these guys didn't care. I've already been seen with a sinner. They've already carried the dead weight up the ladder. They're already holding onto the rope. They're already lowering them in. They're getting their you know, rope burns. Have you ever tried to hold a rope? Man, they tear your hands up. But they're getting their rope burns. They're doing everything because they said our friend is broken, and the only thing that will fix him is Jesus. And Jesus fixes him by forgiving his sins. There's a lot to say about this, and that's next week. Because I can't do it right today, not and cover everything that's important to say. So like he begins, the first thing he does is he forgives his sins. Um, when Jesus saw their faith, mind you, their faith, not his faith, their faith. He said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, son here sounds very affectionate, doesn't it? Um, it sounds sort of fatherly. It sounds sort of old. In reality, the word here is authoritative. It is the, the voice of a, of a guy who is higher on the social and authority hierarchy than the person he's addressing. He is talking to him as a subservient, and he says, your sins are forgiven. I am willing to bet 300 donuts, and I can't fulfill that bet until we talk to these guys in heaven, that they did not bring him there to get his sins forgiven. They wanted him to be healed. But what's the first thing Jesus does? He forgives him. And oftentimes we look at Jesus that way. It's an easy hole to fall into where we think about Jesus as the genie, right? Say your prayers, rub the lamp, get what you want. Itty-bitty living space. Um, But Jesus isn't a genie. And Jesus came. He healed a lot of people, and all those people died anyway, eventually, right? Forgiving a man's sins is what Jesus came for. He heals us. God answers prayer. God brings people back from the dead occasionally. God does amazing things. The most amazing thing he does is he heals our souls. He forgives the man's sins. Now, some of the teachers of the law were sitting. This is not the part we're preaching on, but you need the whole story. 
Now some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Mind you, they would have seen this guy, and the first thing they would have thought was, that guy can't move because he's a sinner, right? First thing they would have thought, and Jesus responds. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, he took his mat, and he walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. All right. Big touching on this, not going into it, no rabbit trail. Okay. When Jesus forgave the man's sins, I'm willing to bet everywhere, like the people on the top were like, that's it? Right? But in reality, your soul is the only thing you got. Everything else will go away. The soul is the most precious thing you have. Jesus actually, when talking about lust, says, well, it's better to lose an eye or to lose a hand than to go to hell. Because, like, you know, your soul will be there forever. You'll just lose this part of you for now. Right? Don't be afraid of men who can only kill your body. Be afraid of the God who can punish you and cast you into hell forever. Right? Like, this is a big deal. Your soul is the only thing you have that is forever and that belongs to you. And these guys probably weren't thinking about that because we're human. We live in these bodies. We don't think about these things. But in reality... Forgiveness of sin is what he really needed. And when we pray for our brothers, we pray for those who struggle, we pray for those who are hurting, we pray for their circumstances, but we also need to remember Jesus' mission, his gospel, the story of Christ is the story of salvation. It's the story of him dying to take sins on, not the story of him doing a bunch of nice things for people. And he demonstrates it by forgiving this man. And everybody's offended. They all thought he was wicked. They all knew he needed to be forgiven. But they didn't care because they looked at him a certain way. And it's easy to fall into that hole. Um, So really quick, the idea of holding the rope, being the guy who has your three-strand cord and you connect it to the people around you and you connect it to the loss that God puts on your heart and who you encounter who need the gospel and you hold on. First off, it's easy to stand in the crowd. It is easy to blend in and just say nothing or to look and judge or to like not be the guy carrying. It's easy to say, hey, I'm standing here. You can't come in, right? It's easy to say, we don't want the sinners in here. They'll make holes in the walls or stain the carpet or do something else we don't like. Like, we don't want those people here. We need them to behave right before they can know Jesus. It's easy. I'm telling you. And I don't think most people end up there on purpose. We drift there, right? We had a program at Basher uh, that uh, Hope Cottage, it was one of the only sex offender treatment programs in uh, the state of Indiana, I think in the tri-state area, actually, but I could be wrong. Uh, it was phenomenal. It was all boys, ages like, I think the youngest kid I ever met there was six through 12. Uh, and they would take them to church every Sunday. And they went to this church where the pastor knew about them and the youth pastor. 
and they brought a lot of staff. They were very controlled. It was hard to go to church with them because you couldn't take them to the bathroom. Like, it was difficult. Like, you, they were really careful, hyper-careful. And then one day, a member found out that they were bringing sex offenders to church. And, like, by the way, these kids, they're little boys. I mean, they're awesome. They treated them beautifully and lovingly and wonderfully. And then somebody found out, and somebody told somebody else. And before you know it, they showed up to church one Sunday, and they were told, yeah, you're not welcome. Please don't come back. The crowd, the crowd sometimes gets in the way, right? And it's not that we think about, I need to get in the way. These people who said, well, these hope boys, they can't come back. They weren't thinking, cut that rope and get them out of here. Like, God is going to kill them. They're thinking, what about my kids, right? They weren't asking anything else. They were only concerned about themselves. And they honestly, and I'm saying this, like, I'm hyper careful about my children. And, like, I was always uncomfortable, you know, in that setting because you have to be so vigilant and careful. Like, it's understandable, but at the same time, like, it was unchristlike. And at times we have to take these risks. And standing in the crowd is the safest place to be. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard, last week I spent some time studying this quote, and I've reflected on it, and it will be a motto of mine forever. Um, A man who takes a risk loses his footing for a moment. A man who never takes a risk or never takes on risk loses his soul. If we stand in the crowd and hide, if we never pick up the rope, if we never watch out for the dying man, the broken man, the lame man, the, the sex offender, the wicked man, the, you know, the sinner, we lose our souls. We lose a part of us that we can never, ever, ever claim on our own, the most precious part of us. So what else do we have for holding the rope? Uh, some of us are like the paralytic. We need, and actually I wrote this, I'm going to change it. All of us to some degree are like the paralytic. All of us need folks to bring us to Jesus over and over and over again. We need folks around us to hold the ropes. Um, and sometimes it just requires that we ask. I, as a pastor, is the hardest thing in the world to say, I'm struggling, please pray for me. I am learning that right now. It is awful. Uh, I, I, it just is. Um, but all of us need it. All of us need somebody around us praying for us. All of us need somebody around us keeping us accountable. All of us need somebody around us to raise the bar so that we try to be more like Jesus. All of us need, by the way, if everybody's serving, who gets served? No one. Who likes being served? Who likes being the weak one in the relationship? No one. It is very easy, again, to never take the risk of saying, I need you to love me right now, right? I need you to help me right now. I... I, uh, it's hard, but we all need someone to hold the rope. We all do. Uh, some of us are gripping the rope, right? Some of us know people that we've been praying about for years. Some people, some of us know people who are like dead inside and we still love them. You know, some of us like go to them over and over again and show them the love of Jesus and get a slap back at us. Like that's hard. And sometimes there are times and places where I think our calling is to cut the rope, but I I can't get into that today. Like when it becomes toxic or when it hurts them for us to hold on or whatever. But even then we pray, right? 
all of us, this is our job. Uh, you want to see a group of kids that need people to hold the rope for them, come in on Wednesday night and watch Jeremy's youth group for a while. Jeremy, because Brooke held the rope, right? Because people in this church held the rope and brought Jeremy to Christ over and over again, he suddenly stopped being paralyzed. And he came back to life spiritually. He's become somebody who holds the rope for kids. And Jeremy has this weird gift where he attracts, you know, kids who have challenging circumstances, right? Like attracts like. And Jeremy engages with kids who are like him. And it's beautiful and it's awesome. But there's a whole building full of kids generally that need someone to grab hold of the rope and hold it for all they're worth. Because somebody needs to bring them to Jesus in prayer by showing love, by preaching the gospel, by just sitting down and eating a meal, by opening their home, whatever it is. Like, we're called to hold the rope in these circumstances, and it's hard. It comes with its own strains and perils. I read an interesting story this week. I read it like five times. I didn't want to use it because I'm pretty sure it's fiction. Uh, but it's a story of a group of folks down in South America. It's a tiny little village by a very fast-moving river. And one day a boy fell in. It was being dragged off, and the village, they all freaked out, and they ran to the shore, and the strongest swimmer in the group comes running up with a rope that he ties around his waist, and he dives in, and he swims out, and everybody's standing there, and they're all biting their lips and chewing their nails, and they're freaking out, and this guy is just getting slower and slower because the current's so hard, and he's getting tired, and he grabs a hold of the kid, and he turns around for somebody to pull him in, and he realizes the rope went in with him because no one picked up the other end. And both of them were dragged down river and drowned. I, I, uh, I, the people who do ministry need folks holding on to them as well. I, uh, this week I had, uh, Monday I went in to visit with the nursing home staff. I stopped in to talk to the, uh, the wees before I went. I almost called you the bitses. Uh, I stepped in to talk to the wees before I went and I, uh, I was going to go talk to them about Bruce's funeral. And Bruce and I were friends for a long time. I, I cared about Bruce, and Bruce died. I sat with him the day before he died. He, I held his hand. I, it was a difficult day for me. I got done talking to him. I was with him for like an hour. I prayed. I talked. I visited as long as I could. And then I went and I talked to Francis for about 30 minutes. And she was really upbeat, and she was really happy, and she was really energetic. It was the last time I talked to either of them. I went on Monday morning before I went to plan the funeral. I sat down with Daniel, and I, Rebecca told me that, that Francis had died. And I've known Francis for 10 years. Y'all have known her longer. And there's a part of me that feels weird being heartbroken that my friend died because y'all have known her longer, right? Um, and then as I was preparing to talk to Bruce's brother the other night, the guy, I got a text message that a friend of mine in Indiana, the guy who took my job or like who replaced me as chaplain who worked with me in ministry for years, I talked to him on the phone. I trade emails. I got a message before I went to call his brother that my friend uh, Rusty, like that he just died out of the blue. You know, he missed work for a couple of days, thought he had the flu, and then he died. And like they found out because the police called the home. And so, like, I'm in this weird spot where, like, three of my friends died, like, in the space of a couple weeks. And I'm, it's been a really hard week. And it's really hard for me to tell you all this, right? Like, I've been weirdly emotional. I don't like that. I don't like saying it out loud. I don't like being that guy. Lost my temper with someone. I explained it to him, like, hey, I'm sorry. I'm just kind of having a bad time. That is hard for me to do. But pastors, we deal with this, right? 
we deal with highs and lows. I was talking to another pastor friend of mine about this yesterday and how I was struggling with it. And he said, yeah, I once had a friend die and then got news of a birth uh, 10 minutes later. And so you stand at the top and sit in the bottom all the same day and you got to do both, right? When everybody else is crying, you stand up and you preach the gospel and you keep it together. Like it's hard. Jeremy has it hard. Um, the people here who do ministry have it hard, and we need people to hold the rope. We need people to come along and say, can I take part of the rope with you, right? We need folks to pray for us. And y'all are awesome like that. I'm not saying it's harder for me to ask than it is for y'all to offer is my experience. But the truth is, the rope, like that three-strand cord, we all have to do it, and we all have to make it a part of our job because this is what Christ told us to do. They will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. We have to show that love constantly. For the paralyzed guy, for the guy who looks like he's got it all together but is falling apart inside, for everyone, right? For the jerk who can't treat you right, they need Jesus too. Ideally, ideally, we would hold the rope for our broken brothers which is all of us, in one way or another, one time or another. And like we would hold the rope for those who are carrying the loss to Jesus. Like it is our job to pray. It is our job to reach out. It is our job to pick up the slack and carry the weight together. This is what we're here to do, folks. So my challenge for you is to look inside and ask, where am I at? Am I in the crowd? It's an easy place to be. I spend more time there than I'd care to admit. Am I holding the rope? Do I need somebody to carry me, but I don't want to ask? Am I holding the rope and it's slipping and my hands hurt and I need somebody to grab hold of it with me, but I don't want to ask? Am I too afraid to cut a hole in the roof because it's embarrassing? Right? I don't want to stand near those sinners. I don't want to tear up this guy's house. Um, though the local contractor probably really appreciate it. Right, Adam? Uh, where are you at? Are you the guy who steps up and say, make as big a mess and big a hole as you need to, I'll fix it later? Christ calls all of us to this mission, to this work, to grabbing hold, tying a knot, and not letting go. All of us. You want to know places where this, well, I'm not getting into that today. My challenge for you today as you walk out the door, as you pray, as you reflect, if I have stepped on your toes today, is to turn to Christ and say, which rope do you want me to pick up? Or to be vulnerable enough to ask for somebody to carry you for a while. Or be vulnerable enough to say, hey, I need help with this. Let's close in prayer and I'll let you all be. Did the biscuits and gravy put you all to sleep? (laughs) Or was it the sermon? (laughs) Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be with the folks who are here who felt challenged, who felt called, who felt pushed, who felt strained under the weight of of the calling of the gospel, who heard the story and remembered people who held the rope for them when they were were broken. And I, I pray the folks who remembered names and faces of people who loved them would imitate those people by loving those they encounter. I pray that folks would stand up and go out into our community and find the broken, the lame, the, the paralyzed, the sinner, the lost man, the lost woman, and share Christ with them through their thoughts, through their words, through their deeds. I pray that this church would be, would be a church that has no crowd. All, all I want us to have is guys carrying stretchers, Lord. 
Help us to bring our community and our world to Christ. Help us to lay them down before you. Help us to know that we're forgiven and ask for your healing in our souls. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. The uh, hearing, hearing Vince talk about holding the rope uh, got me to work at the home for eight years. I preached the gospel to gang members. I preached the gospel to prostitutes, to drug addicts. It changed my life. If you felt called by this, I want to ask you, like, will it change yours? Will the Holy Spirit prompt you? Will you change? Will you act? Amen. Have a good day, guys.